You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, this is Doc G, and today on the Earn and Invest Podcast, we're talking to Miles Gage about his app, Rapunzel. It is a way in which people can simulate the stock market to learn. Take a listen. When I left my first financial advisor in my mid-20s, I took all the cash I had, walked into a storefront Fidelity advisory, and put everything into a mix of healthcare and tech mutual funds. The year was 2000, and I was about to lose 50% of my money. It would still be another decade before I dropped all the fear and anxiety and decided to dive in and learn on my own. I was middle-aged, wealthy, and well-educated. Even so, it took half a lifetime to get my act together in the stock market. Can you imagine how hard it would have been if I grew up poor, surrounded by people who knew nothing of investing without all the resources or culture that were my birthright? Owning assets is the undoubted path to financial success in America today. How do we deliver this boon to everybody, including underserved communities? Miles Gage is the co-founder and chief marketing officer of Rapunzel Investments, a mobile application that allows individuals to simulate stock portfolios for utilizing real-time market data. Rapunzel was founded to provide an unparalleled investing education through fun investment competitions with scholarship and cash prizes. Miles, welcome to Earn and Invest. Let me start with a real basic question. Do we need an investing education? I mean, don't we have Reddit? <laughs> Well, that's a thank you for teeing that one up. I think we need an investing education platform because of Reddit. I think that there are folks that will flock to these internet forums and utilize or or listen to people that they don't know and use that to form their own investing philosophy. And I don't think that's good at all because if you're investing, you should understand why you're buying that versus why the community is buying that. And I think that with those forums, people don't, they lose that independent thought to be able to think about like why this company makes sense versus just hitting the buy now button. Do you think when people go to Reddit, I think the suspicion is, or or what people who use these platforms think is that those who are giving them their opinion are experts. And do you think the problem is that we just don't know who we're getting information from? I think that's exactly the problem because with a platform like Reddit, you don't know who's behind the screen. Sure, someone can 
make themselves sound like an expert, but at the end of the day, you really don't know who's typing behind the keyboard. You don't know what their track record is. You really don't know anything. So it literally could be a 17 year old who's just been on Google all day and, and reading about various topics and trying to form their own expert opinion, even though they're not an expert themselves. We're going to get back to how we learn about investing and Rapunzel, the app that you've created. But before we do, let's talk about you a little bit. Tell us about your childhood. Where did you grow up? It sounds like you had some unique educational experiences as a kid. I grew up on the south side of Chicago and actually attended a public school that had a financial education curriculum. And that school was founded by John Rogers and Arnie Duncan, who felt that in addition to math, science, and English, the students need to be learning about personal finance and investing, because regardless of what field path they go into, they're ultimately going to get some sort of paycheck. And oftentimes, if you never know what to do with your money, you become a victim and ultimately end up making all these poor financial decisions. And that becomes this perpetuating cycle. So they essentially wanted to break that by exposing students or young people to these concepts at an early age. So I started learning about the basics of the stock market and and economics in first grade. Now, this was somewhat atypical for where you lived, right? These type of opportunities weren't available in all school systems. Oh, not, not at all. So Ariel Community Academy was or is unique from other Chicago public schools because it's the only one that is rooted on financial education. So this very much was an atypical education. And I recognized that at an early age that my peers or other kids around the city weren't getting these same experiences and weren't learning the same things. So I feel that I got exposed to concepts at an early age, which opened my mind to different careers that were available to me, or in in addition to that, helped me start building wealth at an early age. And that also opened the door for you to go to the Chicago lab schools. Is that right? That's kind of the famed University of Chicago. What is, is it a high school? It's, it's So it is a pre-K through 12th grade. So it's an elementary and high school. And so actually in 2008, I entered this essay competition hosted by the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago, where I wrote an essay about how I plan on financing my college tuition with the main point being liquidating my stock portfolio. So I ended up winning and ended up winning this competition amongst over 1000 applicants and so that was a really great look for Ariel in the sense that it was this is their proof of concept if you can educate students about this at an early age they can become more versed in these topics and speak on them so I was able to write an essay about financing my college tuition by liquidating my stock portfolio. And one of my prizes was a full ride scholarship to go to the lab school in Hyde Park. So tell me, not all of your friends, I'm sure, went to the aerial school. What did people in your community think about what you were doing? Um, What were their reactions to this early interest in things like the stock market and finance? I, I don't think my peers initially understood it. But definitely in high school, I was looked at as the kid who was already investing in the stock market. So people would often come to me and ask, like, how do I start investing? And like, what what stock should I be buying? So I I feel that I was always looked at as this uh, this voice for financial education amongst people, amongst my peers across the city, which was cool. And another thing 
outside of my elementary school, I was also a member of the teen investment club, Ujama Jr., which is where I ultimately started managing my individual stock portfolio. So one of the things in this investment club that we would do was go on speaking engagements around the Midwest and talk to other young people, other teenagers about the importance of taking charge of their personal finances at an early age. So I was always an advocate for investing and managing your money early on and and not being a frivolous spender. You know, it's not only teens, but also adults. What have you found to be the roadblocks that keep people from understanding the stock market? I think access is the biggest thing. And that's ultimately why we called our app Rapunzel. People view the world of investing and the returns of Wall Street as something that's inaccessible to most people. So Rapunzel is essentially rolling down that hair to provide equitable access to financial markets. But to the initial question, I don't think that there is like this um, universal entry point for people to start learning about investing. Sure, there are resources out there, but I don't think that the average person knows where to go or where to begin. So we feel that the simulator is the, essentially the ground zero for beginning and really starting to exercise that, that financial curiosity as it pertains to the stock market. Was there ever any thought process as opposed to going with a simulator, instead teaching people how to start with smaller amounts of money? Is there anything gained by having kind of the real life experience versus a simulation? I I think that the reason that we ultimately chose to go the simulator route is because people like to learn by doing. Sure, you can read about concepts, but the only way to truly see them and to really understand and to get comfortable with it is to see it in real time. So we we view this as more as like an experiential learning tool. And I think that the reason that we chose simulator versus real trading is the fact that people often are skeptical about putting their actual money in the market initially. So this is a way to start trading in a risk-free way. And I think that's what we wanted to accomplish because if you can get comfortable using the simulator, then ultimately you're going to want to graduate and start investing with your real money, or you may see that you're not a good stock picker and ultimately understand the importance of letting a professional manage your money. One of the cool things about the simulation is that people can play around with it a little bit. Talk about the role of gamification or game-based learning when it comes to investing. I think that game-based learning when it comes to investing is, is pretty interesting because we, my partner and I, we grew up playing a simulated game. And the thing about that one was it had delayed data. So there was opportunities to really actually game it because you could see that this stock price was trading at at XYZ right now versus what it's what it's showing on the system. But what's different than what's different about Rapunzel is that we have real-time market data. So I think that there's this element of excitement that's added to it. So it really feels like it's happening in real time. So it has these elements of reality to it. And I think that that's something that's often missing in in most simulators. And I think that's something that's captured on Rapunzel, which is really cool about the platform. What is the feedback you get when a young person goes on Rapunzel after doing it for a few weeks or a few months? What do you think is the biggest thing they learn when they're doing the simulation and seeing the returns? I think the, the biggest thing that we ultimately see is like, oh, I can do this too with real money. I think that it demystifies what investing has typically been for them. 
and the sense that they see the S&P, they see the Dow Jones, they see all these different indices and the red and the green. And they often think that that's a foreign language. But after utilizing Rapunzel, they're like, wait, this is interesting. This is something that is not out of reach for me. This is something that I can be a part of too. So I think that there's this element of inclusivity that is captured by utilizing Rapunzel. And I think that that's the coolest part. And I think that's the overall objective for us is that it empowers and encourages people to actually invest if they're ready to do that. And so I think that Rapunzel really is is a tool to help you exercise and, and, and train before you ultimately get in the ring with your real money. Talk about the decision to target teenagers and underserved communities. Was this the plan from the get-go? I think yes and, and no. I think that we ultimately wanted to present the platform for college students because you're over 18 and the the time in which you could convert into a real brokerage account is definitely smaller than high school students. But for me personally, this was always a core demographic for me because I felt that this is a time when you're starting to have more disposable income because you may be working your first job as a camp counselor and having a paper route or whatever it may be. So I think that marketing and and targeting high school students is something that ultimately ended up being very critical early on because if if you can capture these students and meet them where they are at, then you have the ability to start breaking habits or or helping students form habits early on. So I think that that is something that was was important to us. But I think that we also recognized and saw an opportunity to educate underserved students and to really talk about that story. Basically, after my partner graduated from Amherst College, he would work on Rapunzel full-time and he would ultimately get acclimated in the financial education space in Chicago, where he would end up meeting the chair or meet the board of the of the Federal Reserve's Money Smart Week Committee. And this is the same committee that oversaw that competition that I won in eighth grade. So this is basically 10 years later. So we pitched the idea of like, hey, you all still do this middle school essay competition that we've seen entries dwindle significantly. Why don't we host a competition on this newly built Rapunzel platform for high school students? Because you're failing to meet or failing to capture this demographic. And so essentially they greenlit that. What we were responsible for is to getting the students on board and coming up with the scholarship money. So we went to Aerial Investments and they sponsored a scholarship competition for 10,000. And then we matched that. So we had $20,000 in scholarships for high school students. And we essentially went to over 120 high schools in the Chicago area. And we, we basically said, hey, hey, we have a scholarship going on for your students, and it would be great for them to be on on the platform. So we saw it as an opportunity to, one, not only introduce the platform, but also expose students from underserved communities in Chicago to the stock market. And our grand prize winner for our initial high school competition in 2018 came from an alternative school on the west side of Chicago. Prior to me speaking at her class, she didn't know what a stock was. She also thought that she was going to have to join the military to support her family. And what happened was she ended up beating over 2,000 kids in the Chicago area in this high school investment competition. And as a result of that, she won a $5,000 grand prize, which ultimately helped her go debt-free her freshman year in Northeastern Illinois. And prior to that, she thought that she was going to have to join the military to support her family. So 
this competition essentially shifted her whole trajectory. We were able to bring her to the office of Aerial Investments, and they helped her get an internship at an asset management firm after she graduated high school. And then she interned at Aerial her following year in Rapunzel this past summer. So we saw these, these competitions, these high school competitions as a way to introduce students to some of our corporate sponsors and some of the relationships that we have as a way of really closing this pipeline, this diversity pipeline, and providing students access to careers and mentors to financial services space. So that was something that was always a passion of ours. And it was just cool that we were able to kind of lead on that foot initially. Just wondering, what did winning the competition look like? Was it based on the amount of money made with investments or how did she win? So it was, it's based on portfolio performance, which in it captures like her dollar amount. So each person starts out with $10,000. So I believe that her return was about 13%. So she ended her portfolio was like $11,300, something like that. So each competition is based off percentage return. So even if you were to start the competition with $9,000 and your portfolio were to jump like 15%, you're not penalized because you start off with a lower dollar amount. It's based off of the percentage gains. So that's what that looked like. So I could see someone coming in and criticizing and saying, well, you're talking about underserved areas and a lot of people don't have the cash at the moment to put in the stock market. Why not concentrate on other personal finance lessons such as saving or budgeting or how to make more money as opposed to going right to the stock market? I I think that the reason that we chose to not go that route is because so many agencies and and so many other uh, programs pursue that. And personally, I was a part of programs that would go like, oh, you need to open a checking account, you need to open a savings account. But if you don't have any money to put in there, then it doesn't, it defeats the purpose. But if you can show a student that like, hey, if you're able to save $200, you can use those proceeds to go buy shares of whatever company it is. So I think it becomes more compelling. Going back to the question, I think that there are already enough tools that stress and emphasize the importance of having a savings account and budgeting and and whatnot. But I don't think that there were a lot of programs that were really teaching and, and trying to expose students to investing. And I think that that is exciting, honestly. And students are driven by money and ways to make more money. So I think that the stock market is a portal and has been the greatest wealth engine since its inception. So it's like, why not show students this, right? Because at the end of the day, if you show them that this is a means to make money, then they're going to save up their money to go buy stocks instead of buying the newest Nikes or the newest Jordans or a video game console, because students do are able to save if it's an item that they want. But if you show them this this item or this thing can help them create more money, then, they, then that's going to be very much enticing to them to really pursue into more, in greater detail. As you were setting up Rapunzel and working on this simulation, you obviously, your plan was to teach young people about stock investing, but does it go further than that? Do you see this as a stepping stone to entrepreneurship in general? Absolutely. And that's the beauty of Rapunzel is it can go in so many different directions. But one thing that the Rapunzel team has developed is about 15 modules to cover an array of financial topics. So in addition to the basics of investing and building a diversified stock portfolio, we talk about different asset classes like 
insurance, real estate, various investment vehicles and, and owning businesses too. But at the very least, I think that this is able to kind of peak and spark the interest and curiosity to becoming your own boss or to really start taking the reins of your financial future. But at the very least, we do see this as a gateway to other vehicles to build wealth. It's an interesting take because normally I think we wouldn't think of the stock market as that gateway. But what I'm getting from you is, look, we have a financial illiteracy crisis right now, especially in underserved areas. And this may be a very reasonable way to get young people engaged and start working on general personal finance as opposed to just the stock market. But it's it's kind of the first step. Right. And one thing that I want to add to that point is when we when we introduce the idea of owning stock in a company, we present it in the sense of you are a part owner of the business. And I think that that's something that students have never thought about. And one example that I, I like to give when I go into classrooms, which I picked this one up from one of my fellow peers in my investment club, was every time we get into a classroom, look around and like ask how many people have Nike shoes on. And oftentimes that's 80% of the class. And so I always say like, when you are buying a pair of Nike shoes, you're essentially paying me. And then they're like, what, what do you mean? And I'm like, well, I'm a part owner of Nike. And while I may only have whatever amount of shares, I'm still benefit when Nike is profitable. And I still benefit in theory when you purchase and support this company. So this idea of ownership is something that is not, has never been discussed in many of these students' homes or classrooms. So I think what you do see is like, there's this shift from consumerism to that of being an owner. And it, it spans beyond being an owner of a company, but you think about being an owner of a company in the sense of having shares, but being an owner of a business. And I'm like, hey, you can do this too. And I think what students see is like when when Brian or myself come into the classroom is like, hey, they started and they developed this app. So not only is it cool that we're offering this platform, but you you get to speak to the founders and, and people that aren't much older than you that ultimately ended up taking an idea from their head and, and bringing it to fruition. So I think that's one of the cooler parts about really engaging with the students is they feel empowered and they feel that they can do something as well because they're not, they don't necessarily encounter a lot of entrepreneurs on their day-to-day. They're able to see that with this platform. Your story about the Nike shoes reminds me of my wife's experience. She went to DePaul in the early 1990s and she had a business Mm -hmm. professor who every day would count the number of people walking in the door with Starbucks cups and then would individually thank them because he owned Starbucks stock. And as you were saying, it was just an immediate connection for the students Mm -hmm. between their consumer activities and making money through the stock market. We've been talking about things like Nike and Starbucks. One thing that reminds me is that most of us out there, especially when we get into the stock market, don't really understand diversification. Talk to us about how Rapunzel teaches them or helps them understand theories of diversification and how they can help them. Absolutely. That's a great question. So you're not able or users are not able to win a competition if there is one company that represents more than 25% of their portfolio. In fact, we don't allow um, a user to buy more than 
25% of, or have a portfolio be comprised of more than 20, I'm, I'm sorry, a stock be comprised more than 25% of their portfolio. For example, if you were to start off with $10,000 on Rapunzel and you tried to buy a share of Amazon, you would not be able to do that because I believe a share of Amazon is $3,600. So that will represent 36% of your portfolio. So that's something that is, we want to stress that initially, because at the end of the day, you shouldn't be putting all your eggs in one basket, because if one company goes under, or if one industry goes under that, your portfolio is exposed to that. And so we want to encourage students to diversify across companies and industries. And one of the search features in Rapunzel is the fact that you can view companies by industry. So if you don't necessarily know what companies you want to buy, you can search and you can see what the industry leaders are. And so that is a means of, of diversifying. We also have quizzes on the platform that emphasize and, and discuss these concepts of diversification, why you should integrate that within your portfolio. But as far as being able to win a competition, if one company comprises more than 25%, you won't be able to win. So that disincentivizes or incentivizes students to by companies in different industries or different index funds or ETFs. We are talking with Miles Gage. He is the co-founder and chief marketing officer of Rapunzel Investments, a mobile application that allows individuals to simulate stock market portfolios for utilizing real-time market data. We're going to take a short break. I'm Doc G, and this is Earn and Invest. You know what? I love our meals from Factor. My son started getting them about a year ago when he needed a quick alternative to meals on the go. But where we've really enjoyed them is we've been remodeling our kitchen. That's right. We've had no access to our kitchen for the last few weeks. And some nights we just had no idea what to do for a meal. That is where Factor came in. We would just pop the meal in the microwave and two minutes later... We'd have a fantastic meal. You can do the exact same thing, and there's tons of variety. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggie. Also, discover more than 60 add ons every week. These are chef prepared meals, and let me tell you, they are delicious. No fuss, no mess. You just put it in the microwave, and two minutes later, you have a meal. This is tailored to your schedule. You can customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. Head to factormeals.com slash earn50 and use your code earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code earn50 at factormeals.com slash earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Wish you were in early on some of the best-performing IPOs of 2019 and 2020? Our crowd investors were, and now you can join them in what's next. With our crowd, accredited investors have access to invest directly, easily, and most importantly, early. Our crowd investors have benefited from our crowd companies IPOing like Beyond Meat or being bought by companies like Intel, Nike, Microsoft, and Oracle. Our crowd's investment professionals leverage their extensive network to review some of the most promising private companies and startups in the world, and their in-depth due diligence includes meeting with management teams and generally comprehensive vetting of deals they decide to make part of their own portfolio. Now you can invest in Orient. 
Every year, retailers lose up to 5% of revenue due to unfound products. Orient's indoor GPS is deployed without any hardware installation, with 20 times better accuracy than current solutions, helping customers easily find what they want in stores to optimize their operations. Orient has signed agreements with some of the largest retailers and on-demand delivery platforms in the U.S. and Europe, positioning them well for future growth. Our crowd's accredited investors have already invested in Orient and over $1 billion in growing tech companies. Join the fastest-growing venture capital investment community at ourcrowd.com slash EAI. That's O-U-R-C-R-O-W-D dot com slash E-A-I. Miles Gage is the co-founder and chief marketing officer of Rapunzel, which was founded to provide an unparalleled investing education through fun investment competitions with scholarships and cash prizes. Miles, let's talk about the role of the stock market in corporate America. How do you think your work at Rapunzel will affect the lack of diversity in corporate America today? Do you think it's going to help improve the situation? I absolutely think it's going to help improve the situation. In fact, Rapunzel has a nonprofit entity called the Destiny Project, which was named after our inaugural winner. But what the Destiny Project aims to do is to be a pipeline for um, students of color to gain access to careers and mentors in the financial services space. And how the Destiny Project essentially works is we or the Destiny Project will solicit donations from various financial services firms and banks to support scholarships and competitions in underserved communities. And essentially, we're able to do that because it satisfies a lot of these institutions' corporate giving requirements. So, for instance, a bank may sponsor a scholarship opportunity on an, in a neighborhood on the south side of Chicago. What that will entail is the scholarship will support students in these areas, but additionally, that institutions may also want to get involved in a greater level. For example, they may offer their employees as mentors to students that are participating in these programs. They may also extend an invitation for students to come to the corporate office and interact with senior leadership and engage in lunch and learn series where they're able to see the different careers that are available to them and also have shadow days. This past summer, we hosted, we had about 22 interns from Chicago and Brooklyn. They got to participate in a virtual internship in which they were essentially able to interact with leadership from HSBC in which those members talked about ESG investing and members from HSBC extended or opened the doors for those students to talk to them or reach out if they had any questions or if they were interested in internships. And that's something that we often don't see. And the reason that we wanted to do that is because when students of color are applying for internships, sometimes they're not able to get their feet in the door because they don't have the relationships at these companies. And what I've seen from my internships experience is that many of my peers or colleagues that I was interning with, typically they know someone there. And typically I knew someone there and that's how I was able to get my resume in front of the right people. So we're essentially want to be that platform to get students' resumes in front of the right people and also expose them and provide them the soft skills that they'll need to have success in these internships. Because what also happens is there may be slots allocated for diverse individuals and 
while these students may have these internships, they don't often get the full-time offer because of the cultural fit. They may not be a good cultural fit, but it's like, how does a student become a good cultural fit if they've never interacted with uh, a white person who's 60 years old and may be in the C-suite? There's like this disconnect there. So we want to introduce students to individuals in the C-suite at an early age and, and show them how to interact with them. So when they do have internships, they can connect and they often, and in addition to that, understand how to maneuver through an internship. It's like, you don't just do what's told of you. You often have to reach out to people, try to get coffee or in the virtual world, try to have a Zoom discussion to get your face out there. But that's something that, again, is not discussed if if your parents or if anyone in your family never had uh, a corporate job and you don't necessarily know what the protocols are for that. So that's something that we aim to do with our scholarships for underserved students is allow them to interact with the sponsors of those scholarships. So that is one subset of Rapunzel that we value incredibly. And that's something that we aim to continue to do as we grow and scale our user base. As I listen to you bring up that situation, right, where you have someone from an underserved community who may not feel incredibly comfortable sitting down and talking to someone from the C-suite, a 60-year-old white guy, right? Mm -hmm. Culturally, there's a big difference there. When I think about Rapunzel, I think it helps people take personal responsibility for understanding the stock market. But there's that age-old discussion, is personal responsibility enough versus systemic change? What do you think is most likely to bring about the greatest change for underserved areas? Do you think it is kind of this personal responsibility picking yourself up, learning about the stock market, et cetera? Or do you think that we have to take a much broader look at systemically how our businesses and money-making is organized today? I think it's, it's definitely a combination of both of those. Unfortunately, to look at it from an institutional standpoint, if it's not a priority by the organization, it'll move a lot slower. And you really have to get a lot of stakeholders on board to understand the importance of that. And I think in 2020, we did see a lot of corporations start to make a shift. But what we've seen recently is like, where is that work at? You know, we saw a lot of headlines, we saw a lot of commitments to DEI, um, diversity, equity, and inclusion. But what's actually coming of that? And what we did see was we saw a lot of these organizations donate to a lot of existing nonprofits like the NAACP, the Urban League. But that's great. But at the same time, it's like, where does that internal audit take place? And sure, even if it does take place in, and you put a person of color in a diversity, equity, and inclusion, how much power do they have at the corporate level to really change the mindset of this organization? And it is rooted in this culture, systemic inequities. That is a major lift. So I think what is unique about what we're doing versus what they're doing is like, we try to take, we try to meet them where they are and we try to be this conduit to bridge that gap. So I think that one, you do need the buy-in from corporations, but you also need to expose people at the individual level to understand what's going on and to give them enough power to take things into their hand as much as they can for sure. So I think that, yeah, you can expose them, but if they don't have resources to pull themselves up, then that only goes so far. Sure, you can start investing on your own personal behalf. Sure, you can start a business, which is great. 
And that definitely helps from a micro standpoint, but from a macro aspect and to really move the needle, you're going to need the the buy-in from these major institutions as well. So like I said, I think it's a hybrid of that. So I think it takes giving those communities or these people that you can see have already been making the push on their own and then trying to elevate it higher. So I don't think that there's just going to be like one program that is integrated or implemented by a bank that says, we're going to start investing in in these communities and start doing X, Y, Z. Because it's like, all right, well, if these dollars are earmarked for that, that's great. But if uh, the people that you're trying to impact don't have the acumen or the knowledge to understand how to take advantage of these resources, nothing's going to happen. So they also have to get educated too. And it's also having, it's also meeting them where they're at so they can really maximize the opportunity to really try to dismantle all those years of the systemic equities that have taken place. Yeah, as I listen to you describe Rapunzel, what I'm really seeing is that you guys are putting in place the simulation to teach personal responsibility, but through the scholarships and cash prizes, you're really creating this bridge to corporate America, uh, which is quite impressive. I know you yourself are fairly connected to Chicago. I saw a quote from you on the internet. You said, my long-term vision for Chicago is for every person to have equitable access to resources, regardless of the zip code they come from. Where do you think we stand today? How Are we fulfilling any of this dream and how close are we getting? I mean, I don't know how close we are. I know that there is definitely activity that's taking place. I just think that there is still a major disconnect. And I just see it from a personal standpoint, just I think I'm in a unique position because I've spent um, several years in the corporate world, but I'm also a 27 year old that grew up on the South side. So I still see that my peers don't necessarily know that there is activity going on. And I feel like, hey, there's this program here. How do you not know about it? So at the same time, while I know that there is work taking place, I don't know if it's enough work. And I don't know if corporations know where to meet people where they're at. I don't think they know where people are at. But I can tell you, if you were able to show someone on the street that there is another way and there is this opportunity, they would absolutely stop what they're doing and try to do that. Because I think a lot of the negativity that's perpetuated in the city stems from the lack of resources that are available to them. So it's really just exposing these people and showing them that they exist to really, again, to move the needle. So I mean, I know that there's for sure activity taking place, but like I said, I think there is definitely this disconnect between the older generation and the younger generation and and the lack of of middlemen between them to kind of bridge the gap in the sense that there are a lot of nonprofits that do work with young people, but the nonprofits don't necessarily have the connections and the real meaningful relationships with the with the civic leaders that have the deep pockets to really drive their causes because they may be speaking a different language. So they're so while they may want the same thing, they're they may not be articulating it in the same way in a cohesive way to actually to make that change that's necessary. I saw reading on Medium that Rapunzel was referred to as one of the seven Black-led startups in America that are shifting the culture. Do you feel like you're shifting the culture? And if so, how? 
I I like to think so. And at the same time, I don't necessarily think about it like that because there's just still so much work that I have to do on a day to day. But I, I, I definitely can recognize the role that I play in that in the sense that there aren't a lot of people that look like me that are in the fintech space that really care and really understand some of the problems that that my peers face. So what I like to do is, again, like I said, I, I think I'm able to speak the language of corporate America in a way that is not attacking them <laughs> in a way, in a, in, a, in a really critical way that makes them feel bad. But I think I'm able to really be able to change things definitely at a smaller scale. Uh, and, and as we grow, that'll be a bigger scale, just given the relationships that I've, I've cultivated over the years. But at the same time, it's going to take more people like me or, or more help to really get things going. But I'm trying to do as much as I can and, and utilize and leverage the platforms that I have to, to really shift things. And also, like I said, make investing accessible and make economic inclusion more inclusive. So we're talking really about financial access and knowledge. And that's what I kind of feel that people can get from coming to Rapunzel and using the simulations. Let's talk about how that plays into the broader civil rights movement. How important is financial equity and equality, in your opinion, to the overall civil rights movement that we've been struggling with for hundreds of years here in the U.S.? I think that that's like one of the key things. And that was that was something that, that Dr. King was was really talking about before he, he got assassinated. Unfortunately, I think economic inclusion is one of the last things that really needs to happen. And I think it's like one of the most important things to happen, because if we have economic power, then we're really able to take control of our communities. And I think that a lot of the problems that you see that face these underserved communities and, and black and brown communities is the lack of resource and the lack of economic opportunity. But if that exists and in these neighborhoods are able to develop businesses and get access to capital to develop businesses by real estate and have those opportunities, I think you really do see a lot of those problems shift. And that was something that I saw when I'm working at a bank is that the bank wouldn't lend money in certain areas because it was there it was riskier or that they may not get the money back but it's like if you never take the chance with that community how does that community ever able to grow how are they able to change and i think in 2020 you did see a lot more banks understanding where their redlining was taking place and regardless if there's this community reinvestment act there's still so many things that are put in place to to take capital or to to ultimately restrict capital flowing to these areas. And I think that that is the biggest thing. And we'd also have to really show people how to get that capital. And again, like I said, if you can educate people how to run businesses, they're more than capable of doing it. It's just that it's never been presented to them in that light. And if they can do that, then they're going to be able to take out these loans for for their businesses and, and they'll able to be self-standing. And then that'll foster this idea of reinvesting in the community and then helping other entrepreneurs grow. There's this element of reciprocity that I think will present itself that previously hasn't. But yeah, I think that economic inclusion is, is the key thing. That's as much as civil rights are key and, and, and social justice is huge. If we don't have any money, 
and we don't have any power to lobby and put, you know, our resources behind these policies that we want, then nothing happens. And then I think it's this perpetuating cycle that we've seen that doesn't stop. Miles, let's talk about the pandemic. How has that affected the reinvestment in underserved communities? And also, has it affected financial education? I mean, when you started Rapunzel, certainly you did not see a pandemic coming around the corner. That's an interesting question because the pandemic itself was interesting because I think that there were a lot of people (laughs) that made more money during the pandemic than they did elsewhere just because of the economic stimulus packages that come they came like in unemployment. So I think that you did have a lot of people making more money than they previously were. I don't think that they were allocating that those extra dollars to the best things, unfortunately. I think that again, there's still this this element of consumerism that is very much prevalent in the community. So while they may have gotten that bonus in their unemployment that was spent on items rather than asset. So I think that that was something that was unfortunate. I think that one thing that we did see during the pandemic from like an institution standpoint, well, it's unfortunate was the the murder of George Floyd. And I think that because we were all at home and because there were not other issues going on, this was something that really rocked the nation and it really rocked the world to really pay attention to social injustice. So that really put corporations, they made them put their money where their mouth was. And like I said, a lot of companies and, and institutions issued these statements that helped them or, or enforce the importance of really taking a social justice stance. And like I said, I think that they did issue statements and I think that there are a lot of capital allocated, but I still think that there hasn't, we haven't seen all that capital deployed to help these communities. So that's something that was unfortunate. But for us, Personally, I think the pandemic was good in in two regards. Like I said, and on a later note, that forced companies to put their money where their mouths were. And for fortunately for us, we had a nonprofit, so we were able to go to companies and and get more dollars and resources to support scholarships in neighborhoods. The other thing that we saw was earlier this year was like this whole Reddit craze and people buying stocks based on what they saw on these internet forums that really, I think, opened a lot of people's minds to the stock market. So prior to the pandemic, we were almost trying to like kick the door down and force people to care about investing. But I think that what we saw in January was everybody and their mother was trying to invest on these various mobile brokerage platforms. So I think what we saw earlier this year was the need and the importance of having financial education tools. So that has really helped Rapunzel in that aspect. And that really forced us or made us want to go launch a national high school competition. So this fall, Rapunzel is hosting a $50,000 national investment competition for high school students. We're reaching out to all these different schools across the country to demonstrate and to really open or to really just introduce Rapunzel as a platform, as a means to educate students to about investing. And I think that more schools are open to adopting it now because of the whole Reddit craze that happened in January and their students not necessarily paying attention on their virtual learning and and being interested in in another app to make money. So more schools are open to adopting 
Rapunzel in their classrooms. And I think the other thing that's helped Rapunzel is the fact that in virtual learning, teachers are trying to figure out additional ways to engage and keep students keep students' attention in classrooms. So our mobile app is able to meet students where they're at. You don't have to be in a classroom physically for a student to interact with Rapunzel because it's available on their smartphone. So teachers see this as another tool to capture students' short attention spans. Yeah, what I think is really cool about Rapunzel is when it comes to fintech, one of the things we've been seeing as of late is that it removes the friction to making economic decisions quickly. So mm-hmm. when you talk about the Reddit craze, et cetera, people can now go on their app and put money into the market. Whereas 10 or 15 years ago, they would maybe have to call a broker or there were just steps in between where there was some friction, which could give you some pause to think about what you were actually doing and what was coming next. Rapunzel is different in that most fintech in this sense, it actually gives you a new step in between the simulation where you can study the stock market at very little risk or no risk to yourself before you actually dive in and do that seamless trade, which we all can now do on our phones. I want to end and pivot this conversation on some positivity. Talk to us about some of the other Rapunzel competition winners and what some young people have been doing after they've engaged with this platform? Great question. So I think that all of the Rapunzel winners, one, it helps them pay for for college, but we also extend an invitation for our winners to come and intern at Rapunzel. So we've had three of our, of the past two years competition winners come and intern at Rapunzel this past summer, which is really cool because it, 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 it shows there's this next step. So like, yeah, it's great to get scholarship money, but it's also cool to have an internship, especially at this time. It's difficult for students to get internships after their freshman year of college or their senior year between freshman year of college to get internships. So I think that we're able to provide this, this opportunity for students to uh, start growing in their professional careers and also expose them to some of our corporate friends too, who have extended invitations and open arms for our competition winners to interact with them. So again, I think it's just this, we're providing more access to corporate America that previously hasn't been there. And it's really cool because it's basically meeting students on a smartphone and it's, and it's opening up so many different doors for them. And, it, and, and I think for, for those students, again, like I said, it gives them a leg up amongst their peers when they do want to go and pursue internships when they're in their junior and senior years of college as they're able to have this experience. And then we're also able to provide them warm introductions to firms that are typically very hard to get your feet in the door. But it's the fact that these organizations support some of our programs. So now we have a personal connection to them and we're able to provide these organizations with quality talent that they don't necessarily know how to find. So that's the coolest thing. As I said in the introduction to this episode, owning assets is the undoubted path to financial success in America today. And really up to recently, owning assets just wasn't something that was available to many in the United States, especially in underserved areas. What you've described with Rapunzel is not only teaching people how to use the stock market, but also providing this 
connection, the step forward to entrepreneurship and corporate America. And I think that will change our culture. So I'm really excited we had this conversation today. I want to end this episode the way I end every episode by asking you what's up next in your life and if people want to engage more where they can find you on the internet. So first and foremost, what's going on next? What's coming up in your life, Mass? What's coming up next? Um, Basically, the Rapunzel team is currently on a college road trip. So four days out of the week, we're on a college campus. So I believe this week we're going to Purdue University and Indiana University. That's what's going on. But basically, Rapunzel just launched cash competitions for users over the age of 18. Because unfortunately, college students don't care about the scholarship as much. But now we're able to give away cash prizes on a weekly, monthly, and quarterly basis. And that is really exciting for students that may already have brokerage accounts or, again, students that may be curious about the world of investing but don't know where to begin. But these cash competitions are able to put extra money in in, uh, these college students' pockets. So that's what's going on in Rapunzel. We're essentially going to be on tour from now until the holidays. But it's a very much exciting time, and we're really seeing a positive reception to the app on the college campuses, on college campuses. So that's what's going on in the world of Rapunzel. And if anyone is curious about learning more, you can check us out on Instagram at Rapunzel Investments, R-A-P-U-N-Z-L Investments. You can check us out in the iOS in the Google Play Store at Rapunzel Investments, same it's like a fairy tale, but without the E, R-A-P-U-N-Z-L, or on Instagram at Rapunzel Invest. This has been the Earn and Invest podcast. I'm behalf of myself, Doc G. I'd like to thank Miles Gage of Rapunzel. That's a wrap. If you like this conversation with Miles Gage discussing the Rapunzel app, you can go to earnandinvest.com slash Facebook and join our Facebook group. There we have conversations similar to the podcast, but they are ongoing 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We discuss current events, personal finance, whatever is in the news cycle today. Come become part of our community. That is at earnandinvest.com slash Facebook. Cool. All right. Any questions or anything you feel like we didn't talk about that you want to make sure gets into the episode? No, I think that was a great conversation. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's interesting. And I think what you're doing is really cool. Um, We see so much fintech out there that is labeled as helping people. But when you really get down to it, it's mostly about making money. And I certainly do not get the feeling at all when we talk about Rapunzel, like that's what you do. I mean, what, what you guys really are putting out there seems to really have its main effect is to educate people, bring them up, teach them how to take care of their finances. And uh, I think that can only do good. (laughs) Absolutely. And I think that's one of the differences between us and like a Robin Hood per se is like we've we've been building all this cachet with educators. So when we go into the schools, it's not they're not looking at us like from a predatory standpoint. It's more like an educational resource. Um, but at the at the end of the day, if you utilize Rapunzel, you're going to want to open a brokerage account. So we're talking to a couple of different firms about 
a partnership and what that looks like for graduating our users to real brokerage accounts. But at the end of the day, it's not forced um, and we don't want to just put that on our users, but it's an opportunity for them. So I think that's one of the cooler parts about us versus some of our other competitors is they're not able to do what we are and be as nimble and have that altruistic or lead from an altruistic standpoint. Yeah, I was going to ask you, and this is part of the after show we're talking here, so we don't have to talk about it. I can cut this mm-hmm. out if you don't want to, but what is, how do you guys actually make money? So um, what Rapunzel does, we have like, we host private competitions. So we worked with McDonald's last summer to host a program um, for their interns. And so like those private competitions help fund cash prizes. We're also working on a similar program with Walmart's 1200 interns next summer. Um, And then from the nonprofit standpoint, while we're able to solicit dollars from these corporations and a portion of those proceeds support scholarship, a small percentage of that is able to support data and implementation costs, which is paid to Rapunzel. So it's like we're able to do good and also, you know, get compensated for for the work that we're doing. Um, And then with the graduating users, we're we're working on what, what the fee structure will be if Rapunzel does refer users to real brokerage accounts. So there's opportunities to get paid on that end as well. Oh, very cool. Very interesting. Yeah. Well, this has been a lot of fun. And um, yeah, I hope you don't mind. I felt like I wanted to delve into Rapunzel, but also get into some of the more structural issues that I think you guys are addressing, because I think it's just such a part and parcel of your story. Absolutely. And thank you for, uh, for, for focusing on that as well. I, I definitely appreciate that. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. New episodes drop every weekday, so listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. You care about your money. Of course you do. So why aren't you listening to SoFi Daily? This podcast will keep you updated on the latest news in the stock market and how it could impact your financial life. Stay on top of what's happening. Listen to SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. That's SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts.